text today is Acts chapter 10, verses 1 through 43. Hear the word of the Lord. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guest. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with them, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa, and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. 
He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach, the pe preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. This is the word of God. All right, you can be seated as we pray together. Father, we are, again, grateful to uh, be here, and we're grateful to be able to hear your word this morning. Thank you for uh, the verses that were read to us, and Lord, I pray that they would not just be verses and words that hit our ears and then fall to the ground, Lord, but they would sink deep within us. I pray that you would use this passage this morning to uh, grow us more into the image of Christ. Specifically, Lord, I think about the way that, that Peter approached this man despite his hesitations, despite uh, what he had been taught, what he felt. Lord, I pray that you would give us an ample amount of that courage as well. Lord, give us uh, Give us spirits that are, are fervently uh, pursuing you. And Lord, I pray through your Holy Spirit that you would um, help us to apply this passage this morning. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. And so um, I am pleased this morning to be able to continue our sermon series through the book of Acts. As I've said before, this sermon series has been one of the more impactful on me uh, in recent memory, it's, it's helped me to, to understand uh, ministry much better, and I pray that it's been the same for you. This morning, as we get into this passage, I want you to imagine something with me. And it may be difficult for you uh, to imagine, but I want you to bear with me and give it a shot. I want you to imagine you are a Gentile man in the, uh, in the, um, in the Roman Empire, whereabouts this time in the first century AD and you have come to believe you've come to know and believe in this this religion this this grown out of a small province called Judea there on the eastern side you know of the, the Roman Empire you've come to believe uh, that there was a man named Jesus who came and, and lived and, and died was resurrected and by faith in him you have been forgiven from your sins and have eternal life Imagine that. You're a Gentile man who's come to believe that. But here's the rub. This that you've come to believe is a very Jewish faith, right? It rose from Judea geographically. Its leader, its originator was Jewish. The first of his disciples were Jewish. The first followers there in that, that early congregation in Jerusalem, all Jewish. And you begin to wonder yourself, is there a place for me here? Do I belong here? And this group of people who are so very different from me, this group of people who are, who are Jewish to their core, is there a place for me as a Gentile? 
And maybe, maybe you don't have to work that hard to imagine that because maybe you've been in similar situations in your life. You know, for, like for me, um, I was, it's, this is exaggerating the, maybe the truth a little bit, but I, I was slightly bullied in, uh, in middle school. And there were times that I just really felt on the outskirts of my peers. I just, I didn't fit in with them. You know, I, I mean, I was like them. I desperately wanted to, but I didn't fit in. I wondered, is, is there a place for me among these other middle schoolers? Maybe you have a similar experience in your life. But uh, the church here um, in Acts is asked the same question. You know, it's, it's interesting, the situation I describe, you being a Gentile man there in the, the Roman uh, Empire there in the first century AD, um, I've attempted to describe the situation of a man named Theophilus, the best I understand, who was the original recipient of the book of Acts. It was the one that Luke wrote to there in the very, very beginning of the book, in the first chapter, in the first few verses, he addresses this man, Theophilus. And uh, it's quite possible that Theophilus might have been wondering, I'm a Gentile man, this is a Jewish religion, is there a place for me? So I think it's no coincidence that right here, smack in the middle of the book, with, with several verses here, um, you know, a, a chapter and a half, and then another section in Acts 15 that deals with the question of, did the Gentiles belong with us? This is where we see the church answering the big question, right? The big question is the Gentile question. The Gentile question is this, is the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is it for Jews only or also for the Gentiles. In other words, in other words, this good news of Jesus, is it for the Jews only, or is it for everybody? This question marks a momentous time. The way that the church would answer this question is a big mark in the history of, of salvation, in the history of, of, uh, of the way the, war, the Lord has been working in the world through Israel. This is a break from an Israel-only kind of salvation to a now the Gentiles, now the whole world is included in this salvation. As the center of the, the Jewish faith moves from Jerusalem and the temple and Jewish identity to identity in Jesus, the question becomes, well, is it just the Jews or the Gentiles as well? And hidden behind that is the belonging question, a bedrock question that comes to define the church itself. Who belongs in the people of God and why do they belong there? Who belongs in the people of God and why do they belong there? Well, in essence, we receive the answer to that question here. We receive the answer to the, to the Gentile question. We receive the answer to the belonging question. We receive that in verse 28 here in chapter 10, where Peter says, God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. We see that Peter says, no, there's no such thing as an unclean person. Therefore, yes, the Gentiles too. Everybody. The gospel is for everybody. It's for everyone. And we know that. We know that. That is a bedrock truth of our faith. We're starting with a conclusion, 
you know, the, the, big, uh, the big outcome here this morning. We know that there's no such thing as an unclean person. That God does not call people common or unclean. That there are some people who are able to access the gospel, but there are some, by virtue of, of whatever, that are unable to access the gospel. And we believe that the gospel is fit to be received by every body. But we don't always know how we get to that conclusion, right? We just know, we just take it at its face value. Yes, the gospel's for everybody, but we don't know how we arrive there, how we arrive from, uh, from this, this Jews-only kind of faith in the Old Testament to the gospel is for everybody. And that's what we'll be doing this morning. And we don't always know how that should be worked out. At least the church has not always been historically perfect at applying that truth gospel is for everybody. The church has not always uh, applied that super well in its culture. So you know that Pastor Matthew often talks about a gospel doctrine and a gospel culture. In other words, the doctrine, the, the theology we have, that Christ has come and died for sinners, and as a result of that, we have received forgiveness in his name through repentance of our sin and faith in Jesus. But there should also be a culture that flows out of that. There should be a distinct mark on us as God's people who believe that gospel. There should be a distinct mark on us that separates us and shows that we believe that doctrine. In the same way, I, then, I, I want to look at this uh, and just make a slight modification to that and say what I see here is a no unclean person doctrine. There is no such thing as an unclean person so this week we're going to look at that. Next week we'll look at the rest of this story that begins in verse 44. It goes through um, chapter 11, verse 18. And then we'll look at a no unclean person culture. How we, uh, how we get to this truth and what comes out of it. So um, to do that, to, to look at, um, to understand how we get there, we, we have to begin uh, by understanding how Peter arrives at this conclusion. Uh, Peter arrives at the conclusion that there's no such thing as a common or uh, unclean person that is unable to, to access the gospel. So that, this morning we're going to begin, we're just going to get our bearings, we're going to understand this passage itself, and then we're going to, um, we're going to look at a bit of the theological argumentation. I know you hear theological argumentation, you're like, I hate it when Avery preaches. But anyway, we're going to look at the, kind of the theological argumentation of how um, Peter arrives at this conclusion, that there's no such thing as an unclean person. But first, again, we do have to get our bearings. Um, and the best way to start with that is to ask ourselves, who is this guy, Cornelius? Who is he? Here, found in, in chapter 10. Well, Cornelius is not exactly one of like the central characters of Scripture that runs as like a through line, like Abraham and Moses and David or Jesus, obviously, uh, Peter, or Paul, anybody like that. Cornelius is just here for a brief time. We do actually have a decent about, a bit of uh, information about him, though. Um, we begin by looking at his uh, origin and occupation. You know, like the first two things that you ask somebody when you meet them. Where are you from and what do you do? Um, and we see in both of those that Cornelius is a very uh, thoroughly Gentile man. We see uh, that where he's living at the time is a place called Caesarea. And Caesarea is, is actually the first thing we learn about it there in verse 1. He was at Caesarea. And... The, the town of Caesarea is actually pretty interesting. If you look at it in your Bible, you can uh, t 
take away the Ia part, and what are you left with? Caesar. Caesar was, of course, you know, known as kind of the, uh, the dictator, the, uh, the, the chief there of the whole Roman Empire. Basically, Caesarea was a town that was put in the province of Judea um, there in Israel to govern the province of, uh, of Judea. Like, it was created by Herod the Great for the explicit purpose of governing that province. As such, uh, there was, um, it was a very, very, very Gentile heavy city, right? You know, a lot of the people who would move in from the Roman Empire would be more comfortable there in Caesarea. You know, it, it was created for the purpose of governing that area. Um, it's not surprising that Cornelius would have been here because he was a centurion. He was a centurion, meaning that he was a professional soldier in the Roman uh, army. He was, a, he was an officer. He had a set number of men under him. You often hear that centurions had 100 men. That's not necessarily true, but, you know, uh, it's a good round estimate. He had more than just a handful of men under him at his command. And so he was a, you know, wealthy, more or less distinguished person there in a bustling Gentile city in Jerusalem, or excuse me, in, in Judea. And so he was a very thoroughly Gentile man. But even though, even though he was a, a Gentile man, he was, um, he, he was a very devout man who worshipped the God of Israel. In verse 2, it calls him down a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms and prayed. So in other words, um, Cornelius was somebody who, even though he was a Gentile, feared and worshipped the God of Israel. So the, it, it's interesting, he probably wouldn't have accepted uh, circumcision or practiced, you know, and the, the ritual practices there in the temple, but he did observe and worship uh, the Lord. And so, um, just to get into the events of what happened here, he was praying to the Lord as his usual custom, right? And then he is visited by an angel. I find it interesting, too. I don't know that there's much behind it, but I find it interesting that God initiates this by speaking to a Gentile man through this, uh, through this angelic messenger. But he, he's visited by an angel, and that really underscores the importance of what's going on here, right? Because angels don't just appear in the Bible for ho-hum events, you know? Like, uh, it's not like the, what was that movie with the angels and the baseball, angels in the outfield, uh, I think, where like, you know, the angels help you hit a home run. That's not like what we see we see angels in the Bible. This underscores an important uh, event here. So this angel comes, speaks to Cornelius, and gives him a simple message. Your alms and your prayers have ascended before God. Now what I want you to do is I want you to take some men and send them to Joppa. There is a man uh, named Simon who is lodging, living with another guy named Simon, uh, who is by the sea. Um, I guess Peter was there uh, on vacation or whatever else. So if you're looking for biblical warrant to uh, message Matthew while he's in Florida, um, here it is. I'm totally kidding, totally kidding about that. But anyway, um, so we see that uh, Cornelius responds. He sends uh, three men, three men I believe that he would have been able to trust really well, two of his servants, of course, you know, people that were close to him, that were used to working with him, and a devout soldier we can assume probably had some similar thoughts and sympathies with, uh, with Cornelius about worshiping the God of Israel. He sends these fellows off, uh, and they go, and they approach Peter. But as they do, Peter receives a vision 
of his own. He is, at this point, um, pretty hungry, and before he was able to eat, uh, he fell into a trance. So for, um, for those of you who like to say, I'm so hungry, I'm dizzy, just keep going, uh, and you might receive a, a word from the Lord. Um, again, kidding. Um, but anyway, uh, so Peter there is hungry, he receives a vision from the Lord, not what else, but food. Um, and he sees uh, a sheet descending upon the earth with all kinds of animals on it. All kinds of animals, as in clean and unclean. And the Lord tells Peter to rise and kill and eat. And Peter says, whoa, 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 uh-uh. And he said, I'm not doing that, right? This, is, this would have been extremely taboo. Like, there, there are some things in Judaism that you just don't do. One of those is eat unclean meat, right? You know, that is, that's, that is covenant and faithfulness. That is wrong and sinful to its core. Peter's not going to defile himself by eating something uh, common or unclean even in his dream, right? He's an, I'm, the parentheses here, I've never done this, and I'm not about to start now. So uh, the voice responds, though, and says, what God has made common, uh, excuse me, what God has made clean, don't call common. And so uh, that happened three times, and then Peter woke up and was, says here, inwardly perplexed as to uh, what the vision might mean, um, which I love, Luke is just a master of understatement. Um, he says that Peter was inwardly perplexed, but then... I think the lights came on pretty quick because there were three Gentile men waiting down at the door for him, waiting to meet with him. And interestingly, Peter invites them in, talks to them. You might think, why is that even interesting? Well, someone like Peter wasn't really even allowed to associate with men like this, right? Gentile men were really not supposed to associate with, um, with the Jewish man. I mean, as we saw a few weeks ago, it was really kind of uh, it was really kind of on the outskirts of whether it was appropriate or not to even associate with Samaritans, you know, much less Gentiles. But Peter, um, evidently, uh, was he, he was something. With, the gears were turning up there, and he invites them in, and they tell them uh, what they're doing, and he says that they are from Cornelius. And so Peter uh, goes to agree with them, or excuse me, he agrees to go with them, um, where we see that the lights have definitely come on for him uh, because he not only invites them in but goes into the house of Cornelius and when he goes into uh, the house of Cornelius there's an awkward moment where uh, you know Cornelius wants to fall down and worship him Peter's like hey you're making me uncomfortable I'm just a man please don't do that and uh, then um, Peter addresses the elephant in the room as in he's the elephant because he's in the room um, and explains why he's there while presenting the message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And as we'll see next week, the Holy Spirit comes down upon these Gentile believers uh, who hear this word from Peter. All right, so um, the significance of this, of this whole thing, if I haven't made it clear yet, I want to. The significance of this is huge, right? This marks the clean break where we go from this is a, a local religion there around Jerusalem, you know, out to Samaria a little bit. But now the floodgates of the kingdom have been opened wide where everybody is invited in through this proclamation that Peter gives to the Gentiles. There's no longer, as he says, such a thing as a common or unclean person. But now 
all people have been invited to receive and respond to the good news of Jesus Christ. This is significant. This is an important event in the life of the church. But how did Peter end up there? This man who, who, who believed it was unlawful, as he says, to even eat or associate with Gentile man. How did he end up in there proclaiming the good news of Jesus? Well, that's what I want us to see this morning. I want us to see how Peter arrived at this no unclean person doctrine. We begin by seeing this. A no unclean person doctrine is possible because Jesus has changed his followers relationship with the law. We see that in, in verses 9 through 16. I won't read that for you again because I just, you know, rehashed the entire passage. But in Peter's vision of those clean and unclean animals coming down, we begin to see that, that Jesus' followers' uh, relationship with the law has changed a bit. We see that because, as I said, um, it would have been unimaginable, unthinkable for, uh, for Peter to have ever... Um, eaten an unclean animal, for God to have commanded a Jew uh, to eat something unclean. That's unthinkable, right? Um, but here we receive it. And to understand, understand what's changed here, where it says God has made this clean, to understand how God is able to make these animals clean, we've got to understand how the law works, right? We've got to understand the nature of the law. And I know, you know, not a fun thing to talk about, but uh, you know, we got to come by truth honestly, honestly, and it takes a lot of work sometimes. But we need to understand the nature of the law here. The Historically, um, Christian scholars, theologians, have, have divided the Old Testament law up into three sections. What we believe are actual legitimate uh, divisions of the law, the way the law works in the Old Testament. Three divisions, the moral law, the civil law, and the ceremonial law. I, I promise that it's not as hard to sa understand as it sounds. We can go through it pretty quick. Moral law, very easy to understand. The moral law in the Old Testament is just the Ten Commandments. That's it. It's the Ten Commandments. Um, we believe that the Ten Commandments express eternally true truths about living in God's world. Right? We believe that it's always been wrong to murder. We believe that it will always be wrong to murder. Um, we believe that it's always been wrong to commit adultery and that it always will be. It's always been wrong to commit idol worship and it always will be. These are eternally uh, true um, calls that God has put on everybody living in his world. The civil law is more specific. The civil law are those kind of laws in the Old Testament that are like specific scenarios of what happens when your ox gores another ox, you know, or it is like you have uh, the refuge cities for what happens if somebody accidentally kills a person. Um, we believe that those are the Ten Commandments applied to the nation of Israel in specific laws. So, um, so the, the refuge um, cities are, are meant to be related to the Fifth Commandment against murder because um, someone, you know, still like even if they've accidentally murdered someone, uh, they're meant to go um, to, these, um, to these other cities, but they're prevented from having retribution, from murder committed against them, right? So the whole thing is just a bit of an application, but we believe that those have been removed, taken away. The, they've been taken away because the center of our religion is no longer in the nation state of Israel, but it is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So um, those... Old Testament civil laws are no longer applicable to us. 
The last, the last is the ceremonial law. Ceremonial law are those things that are not necessarily like an application of the moral law, but they um, are the things like clean, unclean foods, um, sacrificial practices there in the temple. These things are meant to give a visual depiction and a prediction of the person and work of Jesus, right? So the clean, unclean distinction is not about dietary regulations, right? You know, um, I mean, a lot of people are like, I don't understand, you know, the, the don't eat pork thing in Judaism or Islam or anything like that. Well, we believe that in the Old Testament, the clean, unclean distinction was made because it is meant to show that God is holy and that we are not, that we cannot approach him because of our sinfulness, right? It's just supposed to be a depiction of that and a depiction of our need for a savior, right? And that is actually predicted um, and is shown in the uh, Old Testament sacrificial system where the, the lambs, where the bulls, where the goats, they were sacrificed on behalf of the sins of the people in the same way that Christ gave himself as a sacrifice for us. And so it's a prediction of Christ coming in the uh, New Testament. But by his coming, he has fulfilled those things. Like it says in, in Hebrews uh, chapter 10, uh, verse 11, it says, And every priest stands daily at his, ser- at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should make a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. All of that point I'm making in all of that is that Jesus has fulfilled the law. And those requirements, those things that pointed forward towards him are no longer necessary, right? The, the, the clean, unclean distinction between these animals are no longer necessary because Christ has bridged that gap between us and God. Even though we still have that record, you know, of knowing uh, the, uh, uh, about the clean, unclean, and that can help us in understanding our own sin, We know that Christ has reconciled us with God. He has brought us near to God. We no longer have this wall of hostility dividing us between God, but we are near to him. And as such, the walls of hostility put between uh, us and other people, such as these, these prohibitions against even eating with Gentiles, they've been broken down. There's nothing dividing us between, uh, between other people. Those, those things that we erect, essentially we're erecting what Christ has already destroyed. Christ has brought us near to God and by his salvation has, in a sense, made all people clean, right? He has made all people equal and ready recipients of the gospel. And so he has changed our relationship with the law. But... Um, we also see in Peter's, uh, we see in Peter's proclamation of the gospel there in his first few verses, we see that a no unclean person doctrine, it's possible because of the character of God. The very character and nature of God calls us to abandon anything that would, uh, that would erect barriers between us and other people. Look at verses 34 and 36 of chapter 10. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, 
he is Lord of all. And we'll cut it off there because that's what's relevant to us in, in Peter's understanding here. Um, here we see basically two things. We see that Peter understands that God shows no partiality and that Jesus is Lord of everyone and everything. First, we see here that God shows no partiality. Peter says that plainly. Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. Partiality is a disgusting characteristic of humans, right? It, it, it's, it's, it's one of the worst things about us. That we tend to show preference for some people and exclude others. It, it happens all the time. One of the worst characteristics that a judge could have is somebody who, who prefers you know, certain kinds of people for whatever reason than another. It results in miscarriages of justice. It's awful. Peter is telling us that God shows no partiality. That drive in us to accept some people and exclude others based on our own trivial characteristics that we, we, um, we decide makes them clean or unclean people, God does not possess that. God shows no partiality. Every person is, is on equal footing before his judgment. He does not elevate some, give some people a leg up over others, but God shows no partiality. And thus, his people should no, show no partiality. The gospel is available to all people. We should not. It should not be becoming of Christians whatsoever to show any partiality. And going on, we see that Jesus is Lord of everyone and everything. Jesus is Lord of all. So he says that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And he says that Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. And in essence, Peter is saying that God is not an ancient pagan tribal deity who is able to serve and protect his one nation but is stopped at the border um, and is unable to protect uh, others. But everybody, regardless of background, regardless of circumstances of birth, regardless of where they come from, everybody is under the purview of God. There is not a king so high and mighty that he would be able to escape the kingship and the lordship of Jesus. And there's, there's not a, a least of these so poor and lowly that they would escape the kingship and the lordship of Jesus. And so everybody, regardless of where they might be, man in Paraguay, a woman in Iraq, wherever they might be, they are able to call upon the name of Jesus and be saved because God is a global Lord of everyone. And so we see that an unclean person doctrine, it's possible because our relationship with the law has changed. And we see that it's possible because of God's character. But finally, we see that it is required because it's a command. Um, and maybe I should have started with this one because it's so obvious and self-evident here. But I've been speaking of how Peter came to this conclusion. And he did. He came to this conclusion, right? Uh, but it wasn't because he was sitting around and pontificating. He wasn't, you know, sitting around and, and, and drinking uh, coffee and twirling his mustache. Uh, you know, he is... Uh, being commanded and driven by the Lord towards Cornelius. 
the Lord appears there to Cornelius and speaks to him directly and tells him to send men to go get Peter. He intervenes in Peter's dream three times, three times, and then sends him with these men to Cornelius. And not to mention the fact that we know from Matthew 28 and Acts 1 that he commanded his disciples directly to make disciples of the whole earth. There are some things in Christianity that come to us in the form of propositions and, you know, you can kind of take it or leave like it's, a, it's, a, it's maybe something you believe or don't. Like, for instance, we can hold different positions on when Jesus is coming back. We can hold them. We can even hold uh, different positions with, with members of other churches about things like uh, the meaning and practice of baptism and the Lord's Supper. This is non-negotiable. This has the force of a command. The Lord has sent us to all people. This is not a take-it-or-leave-it kind of thing. This is a declaration that there is no such thing as an unclean person because the Lord has, has intervened so directly and says so explicitly that all people are worthy candidates of the gospel. So um, we see there in this summary uh, of all this, we see that um, there's no such thing as an unclean person. And as I've said already, we know that. We know that, but we don't always, as I said, do such a good job of living that out in culture of our church or just in, you know, the bigger context, Christianity in general. And next week, we'll speak more to that. We'll speak more to what living out this doctrine looks like. And so next week, we'll be much more application-driven, if you will. We'll, we'll look more at how this should change our actions, how we interact with other people. But I just want to leave with a couple of points of application, one to our faith family to trace and one to um, perhaps unbelievers who may hear this. So, you know, our faith family, Trace, I want to say again, we believe this. We believe the truth that the gospel has been offered is available to all people, but we, we would say that all the day long, but beliefs are often much deeper than the statement we make about them, right? Beliefs go deep within us. It change our hearts. It change our subconscious. It changes our thinking. And so I want us to consider, even if we believe this, even if we state it, if we are harboring within our hearts, within our minds, something that would prevent us from sharing the gospel freely with all people. Ask ourselves, do I have a preference for particular kinds of people? Do I have a preference against particular kinds of sins? Do I have uh, personal resentments against other people in my life that I, know the God, that I know the Lord is calling me to share the gospel with them, but because of those resentments I have, I just don't want to? I want you to ask yourself, is there anything that's making you feel as if any kind of person or any specific person in your life is unclean? Because we have no unclean person doctrine. Do unbelievers who might be listening, might be in our service, who might hear this later um, through our, through our um, podcast or whatever else. You may think, well, this all sounds very nice. Sounds nice that, uh, you know, that there, there's a place for me, and, and that sounds good, but it, it does sound a little bit theoretical. It's not. It's not theoretical. We believe 
that the God-man, that God himself, came as a person of Jesus Christ, a real person who walked our real world. He lived about 30 years, a lot of that, uh, as a carpenter, as a young man, just like you and me, and then began about 30, uh, a public ministry. Public ministry like no other. He healed the sick, he made the blind to see, made the lame to walk, did incredible things, taught incredible things, and then seeming tragedy struck. He was put to death for, he he was accused of, of blasphemy and treason. He had said incredible things like he, like I am the son of God. He opposed the religious leaders for the way that they, they, uh, they had only exterior religion but ignored the weightier matters of the heart. So eventually he was put to death on a cross. The most incredible thing of all is that he rose again. He appeared to about 500 people and now is seated at the right hand of God. And this real person is really inviting you in regardless of your circumstances regardless of what makes you you no matter if you have a whole life full of baggage life full of things that you feel like would separate you would keep you from this person of jesus he's inviting you in he's wanting you to hear this morning message of verse 28 there is no such thing as a common or unclean person and so my prayer for you is that you would respond accordingly and repent and believe in the name of Jesus. So I'm going to pray for us and we'll continue in worship. Father, I pray that you would um, convict us all the more of the ways that we have erected barriers against other people, the ways that we have put up what you have torn down. I pray that you would uh, give us guidance and wisdom in our own search through our own hearts to understand whether we have been, uh, whether we have been stingy with the gospel, whether we have been uh, withholding from others because of our distaste for them, God, I pray such a thing would never be among your people. I pray that you would work it out, uh, work it out of us, as you work through your Spirit. We pray all of this in the name of Christ.